This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and Charles Grant, Director of the Centre for European Reform. Rishi Sunak is in Northern Ireland today, meeting with senior DUP officials. Isabel, can you give us the latest? Yeah, so Rishi Sunak travelling to Belfast last night was understandably seized upon as a sign that this deal that has been imminent for some weeks really was imminent now because the Prime Minister is wanting to try to sell this deal on the protocol, the details of which we don't yet have, to the DUP in particular, ahead of hopefully bringing it before um, the Cabinet next week. So the latest on that is that there have been meetings between the Prime Minister and senior members of the DUP, including obviously the party's uh, leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. And he has come out saying that this is you know, a big moment and that he hasn't seen the final text of an agreement. But it, I think it is safe to say, and I'm quoting him here, that progress has been made across a range of areas, but there are still some areas where further work is required. And he's hopeful that an agreement can be reached. Now, this is... More hopeful, I think, from the DUP uh, than a lot of people were expecting. There had been talk. I mean, I interviewed Arlene Foster, who's obviously not in the leadership of, of that party anymore, but I interviewed her last week where she was really talking down the prospect of getting a deal on the protocol signed off before the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in, in April, suggesting that that was a, a sort of artificial deadline. That's still very much a, a serious deadline for um, Joe Biden, for, for, for Sunak and for, um, for lots of other people for, for the obvious symbolic reasons. So what Donaldson is saying is is a little bit more upbeat uh, than we might have been expecting. Charles, what do you think this progress will look like? What do you think the shape of a new Northern Ireland protocol will be? Well, it's fairly clear there's going to be a, a compromise on goods flowing across the Irish Sea from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, whereby those goods that are destined for, the Repu- for, for Northern Ireland alone will go through a green channel and with minimal checks. Those goods that might be at risk of going through to the Republic in the south of Ireland will be go through a red channel, will, will need to have more checks. That's pretty much agreed. The more difficult issue is, is the most difficult issue, is probably the role of the Court of Justice, which... David Frost, the former Brexit minister and Brexit negotiator, seems to care hugely about. And uh, he and some people in the DUP think that any role for the Court of Justice in policing the agreement is very bad indeed. But of course, the EU says we can't, given that Northern Ireland is in some respects staying in the EU single market, there must be a role for the Court of Justice. I I guess the the likely compromise will be that that there'll be a political process established if a dispute arises to, to try and sort out the problem by political negotiation and arbitration. If that doesn't work, then, then, then you would go to the Court of Justice. Finally, the Court of Justice must play some role in policing the single market. That's, that's the compromise or some, something's close to what I've said. The, the, the DUP were hinting, I think, they may be able to accept that. I was told by somebody who'd just been speaking to Donaldson that he's not particularly exercised about the Court of Justice. But 
but David Frost is, and I think um, the government's going to be scared of the kind of uh, reaction that David Frost and possibly Boris Johnson may have to this deal. I haven't mentioned another area, which is the democratic deficit, in that all the EU laws applying to Northern Ireland, the Northern Irish don't have a vote on them, of course, these days. They're not even consulted on them. So some sort of mechanism for consultation to remove the democratic deficit is quite important for the DUP, I think. Then, of course, there's plant and animal goods as well, which have special rules applying to them, which is very difficult, and there have to be some sort of compromise on that as well. But I think the the outlines of a deal are emerging. Isabel, do you think the government's going to be able to get this new deal past those opposition forces, the DUP, people like David Frost? DUP Chief Whip Sammy Wilson said today that the DUP are in problem-solving mode. Yeah, and also, um, as well as David Frost, there's also the the opposition group within the Conservative Party uh, more widely, the ERG, the European Research Group, who at one stage were really working hand in glove with the DUP. That was some years ago now, but they're an important faction who Sunak doesn't want to unnecessarily antagonise, particularly given a lot of them supported Liz Trust for leader, are feeling quite bruised by the way the past few months have, have gone for their for their side of the argument, even though Sunak obviously is a Brexiteer and Liz Truss wasn't. So I, I think there are a lot of internal party dynamics that have less to do with the protocol than might first seem or be said and have a lot to do with the way in which Sunak reaches out to these MPs, makes them feel loved, which is a really important thing in Conservative Party management, whatever the issue. And Charles, you're at the Munich Security Conference, which starts today alongside Olaf Scholz, Kamala Harris and Emmanuel Macron. What's the mood like in Munich and what's um, up for discussion? Well, the mood is fairly optimistic because the we've had little speeches already from Zelensky by video link and Scholz and Macron, but the, the unity of the Western Allies is holding despite the fact that there are obviously very different approaches between some of them. I mean, Schultz was stressing the need for caution, saying Let's, it's better to move slowly and cautiously than lose our heads and act too quickly, given that we're going to be in this conflict for a very long time. He was implying many years to come. And Macron didn't say quite that, but he said in the long run we're going to have to negotiate with Russia. Russia isn't going to go away there'll have to be some sort of deal that is acceptable to the Russians in the end, though it must be one that is also, of course, acceptable to the Ukrainians. So France and Germany implying some caution needed. Well, there's another camp, of course, who haven't yet spoken yet at the conference, the the Poles, the Balts, and some other Central European countries and some of the Nordics who are much more aggressive towards Russia, or aggressive perhaps is the wrong word, firmer towards Russia is the right word, who say you can't negotiate with Putin, Ukraine must reconquer every inch of its territory, and uh, Russia should, should be isolated and, and become a pariah state. So there is, there is a lot of tension underneath the surface. But as Schultz himself said, President Biden's probably more or less with him in, in the cautious camp, Biden being a cautious man. The unity is holding, but there is worry, of course, that can the unity be maintained? And the biggest worry of all underneath the surface here in Munich, of course, if, if somebody like Donald Trump comes back to the US presidency quite soon, then that could uh, smash all the Western unity on Ukraine completely. So for now, there's optimism, but there's worry about the long term. Isabel, the key message from the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian foreign minister is at the Munich Security Conference, is that they want fighter jets. Where's that conversation at the moment? And what's the UK government's position on it? Where do you see that going? Yeah, so in terms of fighter jets, things haven't moved on a great deal um, from Zelensky's visits to the UK last week. 
where he asked to give Ukraine wings. That was something that Rishi Sunak obviously had to answer in the moment because he was enjoying the, the stardust brought by Zelensky visit. But since then, we've really been in a... Um, unintentional pun here, a holding pattern on whether or not Britain can send fighter jets. And really, I think the the bigger question, if you talk to people working in the defence world, is would Britain commit to sending jets for the long term? Because this isn't, you know, even if you can speed up the training of, of pilots for these jets, it's going to take a long time to do that still. Uh, it's going to take a long time to get them to Ukraine. But the bigger question that people like George Robertson, um, former NATO chief, have been asking, have been hoping to try and push the government on, is could the UK help Ukraine with jets post-conflict uh, so that you don't have a situation where the conflict hopefully at some point ends, but Ukraine isn't able to defend itself or to see off future Russian aggression and that obviously uh, would be important in and of itself, but it would be an important message as well, because to commit to that now would be saying to Vladimir Putin, this is not going to get easier for you. And so that's why people like Robertson have been pushing for that. Isabel, overnight Liz Truss has given a speech saying that Britain is to stand up to China and to do more to combat what she says is a totalitarian regime. Could you tell us a bit more about what she had to say? Yeah, so she's uh, been speaking in Japan um, overnight, uh, overnight for, for, for Brits anyway, and uh, she's been really repeating the themes that she had, well, Prime Minister, briefly, uh, but probably more interestingly when she was Foreign Secretary, uh, on the need for the UK to be more hawkish on China and the threat of China um, to the world democracies, which is what she's been talking about. She wants the creation of an economic NATO, which is something she's uh, spoken about before. I mean, she said things like in the speech, the free world is in danger. And she's talked specifically um, about Taiwan as well, saying that it must be able to defend itself. She wants to see a more developed Pacific defence alliance alongside even closer cooperation between NATO and our Pacific allies. Now, the really interesting thing about Truss's interventions and uh, regardless of regardless of what ha- happened with her premiership she can speak with the authority of being a former foreign secretary is that even those who have very little time for her as a person as a politician as somebody who has arguably really damaged the conservative brand will still say but she does have a point about where this government should be going and they'll say that on economic growth but they will also in large numbers, say that within the Conservative Party. And that's why these interventions from the former Prime Minister are a problem for Rishi Sunak, because they remind a lot of Conservative MPs of what they think and of how they disagree with Rishi Sunak, who has a much softer line on China to his predecessor. Uh, I mean, in a, interestingly, there is it's quite evident in Munich and other places that there's, there's a real difference of approach between Europeans and Americans when it comes to dealing with China. There's cross-party consensus in America now that Chinese power is a threat per se, while Europeans are much more dependent on trade with China than the US is and and are worried about things getting too bad with China. They don't want to lose economic opportunities in China. And I think Europeans are mainly concerned more about 
Chinese behavior than Chinese power. If China, if China stopped abusing human rights and stopped stealing intellectual property, a lot of Europeans quite happily have a close relationship with it. And that's where I think more or less the British have been. They've been a bit more European than, 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 than American in that respect because the British economy needs links with China. But, but here's Liz Truss saying, no, actually, I think Liz Truss has a much more American view. You, you take a, she's prepared to pay the economic penalty for disengaging with China economically, which most British politicians, I think, are not, and British businesses are certainly not, and most European businesses are definitely not at the moment. Of course, if, if the relationship between the West and China worsens due to a conflict over Taiwan, then we'll all end up with the Americans. But I think British, I mean, European businesses and some British businesses too are hoping we don't get to that place. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoy Coffee House Shots, why not come along to our Coffee House Live budget briefing? It's on Wednesday, the 15th of March at the Emmanuel Centre in London. Doors will open at 6.30pm and you can join the spectators Fraser Nelson, Katie Bulls, Kate Andrews and a special guest as they analyse the budget just hours after it's announced. To get tickets, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash budget.